0: So it's a hat trick, right? When you try to start the podcast three times.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's a hat trick. We just did it. That was, we just Excellent. did. It. I, yeah, um, it, it is. It's very much. I feel like I'm going to sh- throw my hat out onto the proverbial um, podcast ice for you. Um, my, my, every everything seems to be working fine now. My, my speakers and microphone are aligned uh, as people say in the world of corp- corporate worlds um and uh and i'm ready to go i think i think we're here we're here for the what um we're we're here for a good time we're not here for a long time
0: <laughs> I, I thought we i thought it was that we're here we're not queer but we're allies
1: well we have that that absolutely um do you know we're here for a good time not a long time by trooper i do not oh this I is not a get the reference i believe it's a canadian band of course <laughs> of course um, cause we haven't, we haven't had enough Canadian content, uh, in the last few days. Um, it's, uh, by a band, uh, Trooper, uh, we're here for a good time. Not a long time is sung by Canadian rock band Trooper released in June, 1977 is the lead single from their third studio album, knock em dead kid. Despite only reaching number 43 in Canada, the song has continued to be popular. Um, Don, it's been huh. played on the, uh, on the radio a hundred thousand times. Wow. Yep. Um well, well
0: I I am very intrigued. I uh, we will, I will I've queued up um uh the video to for show notes and also to listen when when we're done.
1: Yeah, uh did not know this but it was produced by uh famous Canadian uh Randy Bachman of oh, uh, BTO. BTO and the Guess Who. Oh um, wow. Yeah. So he uh there you go. That and actually when you listen to we're here for a good time, not a long time, you will I, I think you'll you'll hear it. You'll hear it in the sound. Yeah, nice. Um, I I lived when I was at the University of Guelph in my first year, uh, which is known in Canada as your frosh year, not your freshman it's not, year.
0: It's not grade 13,
1: huh? It's not grade 13. No, I did grade 13. That was in high school. Um, and then, then, then I went to, to university or as it's known here in the United States college, <laughs> even though dog, can someone explain to me? And I'm sure that there's like a, um, a standup comedian bit about this, like in uh higher education comedy or uh, academia um, uh, standup. But why is it that you go to college at a university? I, I, <laughs> I, I don't like understand parking on the driveway and driving yeah. on the parkway, but I don't get it. I don't get it. It just is right. Like I went to the university of Guelph. Where did I go? I didn't go to college at the university of Guelph, unless I'm talking to an American, then I have to describe it that way. I went to yeah. university at the university yeah. of Guelph. Yeah. Uh, yeah that's
0: uh, interesting. I think the Canadians are doing it right in that case, Ben, and the Americans have it wrong.
1: Right. Right. Not un- unlike uh, Candida, where we pronounce that incorrectly, uh, no matter what, or maybe that one's I, just me.
0: I, I don't, I'm, i am you know here's the thing i mean we did have somebody throwing pronunciations at us and i'm i'm i've i'm i am i am i am i am i we are just going to have to agree to disagree on that one ben. yeah
1: yeah canada canada that's not that's like my country with another d as it was as it was described in the email um right. okay okay so we're here for a good time not a long time um i uh when i was uh my in my frosh year of university at the university of guelph lived in a residence hall called lampton hall um yeah lampton lampton hall um not lampton college um and not lampton hall residence at western university which is a different um university however did you however did you find it ben it sounds very confusing it it is it's very 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 confusing um, so Lambton Hall, um, it hall features. Uh, this is uh, straight out of the housing tour, and I, I'm gonna I, I'm doing this cold. Don, I don't I will tell you if these are our actual hall features. Four story building accommodating 380 students. Yes, that's a feature. Um, first and second st- floors consist of suite style rooms, two or three single rooms with so a shared ensuite kitchen area. That did not exist when I was there. That's been renovated. Third and fourth floors consist of double rooms. This is what the entire Lambton Hall consisted of when, when I was there in 1997. And again, in 1999, um, upper floors are divided into sections. Each section has a lounge and students are assigned to rooms located on either side of the lounge. OK, so this is the part that's important for we're here for a good time, not for a long time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I lived in a lounge. Well, that's what we were, what what you associate with. And so it's exactly as it says here um, that I lived on the fourth floor and my room was close to the A lounge. So we were known as section four A and our theme okay. song was, we're here for a good time, oh. not a long time. Is that, oh. funny? That's Is that great? Very cute. So 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 I didn't know that song at all until I went to the University of Guelph. Even though it was by very popular Canadian band Trooper, um, and it was apparently been on the radio a uh, hundred thousand times. Um, I uh, but but then over the course of that year, um, our residence assistant, um, uh, a, 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 an individual named Jordan, Jordan would play that song all the time. Because uh, he was he was he was good about like well, uh, getting us into the the groove of 4A lounge. Well, now now tell
0: me this: um, was it like the YMCA song? Like, did you do like four and you held up four fingers and then you like did an A where you put your hands over your head at a point? Like, were there gestures that went with it? When so you sang it?
1: I, yeah, no this this is a great question. I would not say that in my recollection there were official gesture gestures. Okay, but. Definitely at times I know of people who would hold up four fingers on their one hand Mm -hmm. and then instead of doing a like in the YMCA, they would make an a with a triangle with their fingers. Oh, so so if you think of um, putting your index finger and your thumb together to make a triangle Mm -hmm. that forms an a I don't think so yep in uh I'm, in, look, I'm looking at it right now it's and i think Day. that's a white power symbol oh no, that's also <laughs> and in fact we were not nearly as woke as we were that could have been the case we could have been um young impressionable minds uh that, that were flashing gang signs or white power symbols which hopefully that wasn't the case uh so um don do you know can i i'm going to tell you some more things about Lambton hall uh <laughs> Um, yeah. La- lamp- yeah, No, it's, it's right here. It is serviced by two elevators. Mm-hmm. Um, the layout of rooms and lounges allows for lots of interaction between students. This is true. Mm. Um, it's because the lounges, at least at the time did not have televisions. And so, it, and that was the only gathering spot you could be like the rooms were so, so small that if I was to stand in the middle of my room and hold my arms out wide um like a tea like i was making a tea and my my um roommate was also to make a tea that we could touch both walls like my yeah yeah, it's very small like two two beds pretty close together um two desks and so the only interaction between non-roommate students you basically couldn't have more than like four people in a room um because it was so small so you had to be in the lounge um there is some information here that I'll tell you is a bit surprising. It may have come since I lived there. There's a music practice room with a piano. Wow. Yeah, I never never use that. I don't play the piano. Um, there was um a uh, a, a room that somehow we convinced the the early on in, in the first couple of weeks of living in Lambton, um, it became very apparent. That there were multiple hockey players that lived in this residence of 380 students, mm. which again, to to just play into every single Canadian um, stereotype and trope, right? Like, of course there were. Three, take mm-hmm. 380 um, students that go to university, and, and you're going to find like 150 hockey players, which is probably probably weren't 150, but it's probably 80 or 90. Mm-hmm. So um, we convinced the residents authorities that because our rooms were so small that we needed a storage room within Lampton for just hockey equipment. And and Don, let me tell you how amazing this room was. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's like a, like a, a janitor's closet with, I mean, 80 hockey bags that are at various levels of, moisture and dampness based on how soon after a hockey game that they were, that you walked into that room mm-hmm. and it smelled incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I can't, I can't describe, like, I know that my hockey equipment smells terrible. And I know that coaching, um, both of my kids, I've spent a lot of time in hockey dressing rooms with, you know, uh, four, 12 to 15 year olds. And their hockey equipment smells atrocious and magnifying that into a room of 80 bags was something special, something that I've I've not since experienced. And that's what I will always associate um, the Lampton uh, uh, 4A experience with here for a good time, not for a long time in the hockey room. So, so there's, there's a trip through my University of Guelph years, Don.
0: Wow, well, just to, since we're sharing, <laughs> I, I have shared with you um, a link to Google Maps, which you can then click through and find a bunch of other stuff, um, including the link I'm about to send you of uh, Cornell University, North Campus Low Rise 7. Low Rise 7, yeah. yes, So. all right. And uh, yeah, that sounds very, actually architecturally, it seems similar. And it. yeah, I mean, they seem, it seems like they probably were built around the same time, um, same sort of yeah. concept right? Uh, in, the, in the low rises, uh, every low rise consists of four units. Every unit has a shared study lounge and kitchen uh, with a refrigerator, microwave, and stove slash oven. Uh, within each unit, there are six suites. Each suite consists of a double, two singles, and a triple. Now that's changed. It used to be two doubles and two singles. Um, but now they've got i guess because of whatever it, it, inflation <laughs> they've got three people staying in one of those rooms <laughs> um, yeah so each suite has a shared bathroom and a closet oh yeah the cl- cl- huh, i don't remember the closet that's interesting um, well it is for you
1: can store your winter jackets and shoes or your, cetera, ho- or your hockey equipment or your hockey equipment yeah so anyway um yeah well i, I um I'll, I'll tell you based on the uh websites um cornell's um, Cornell university campus groups, low rise, six, and seven, um, become part of our vibrant community is a much better website than uh Lampton hall university of <laughs> Guelph student they like housing services. I think that this e- website, truly, like Don, this might be what the website looked like when I was there in 1997, well, when, like when I, when I was, when I was at low rise
0: seven, um, that was before Al Gore invented the internet. So right, right, right. Yeah. Web page. Yeah.
1: Uh-huh. Oh, there are 360 degree room tours. Wow. And it's uh this is what people used to do back um, but it's very creepy. It's like a fisheye view of a Lambton hall room. Ooh. Yeah, UOG housing, Lambton suite bedroom. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't, it's not worth looking at those. Um uh last thing before we, we leave this, uh it, it it is uh I didn't notice this in my first run through of this website. There is a bullet third from the bottom at Lampton uh, hockey equipment and bicycle <laughs> storage is available in the building. A separate key, maybe signed out from facilities coordinator in order to access these rooms. So, Don, I, I, I mean, legacy wise, that room didn't exist before 1997. Our, right. our, I, I would say that the leadership provided by my class yeah, um, is, has meant that the, we we now we continue to have like, uh, hockey equipment storage today at Lampton Hall. Yeah. It's a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Um, I, I also, uh, lived in, um, uh, the South residences, which look very different. I'm going to send you a link to that. Mm -hmm. And I was a residence assistant there. And then I returned to Lampton hall also as a residence assistant in my third year of, uh, of university or when I was a junior in college, depending on where you are. Um, and, uh, and and that was it for me i was pretty much good after that <laughs> i i did not need to be there any any longer um but um south residents and i think this is probably something that is common if you go to any like higher um education institution because I'm sure the rumors of this experience here uh or are here at um, NC State as well. But the rumor was that the South residence was built in a way it was designed by the same person who designed um uh, multiple high security um prisons, right? Because oh, that makes wow. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but, sure. but you could see it is designed by Australian architect, John Ad- Andrews. And I will look up him in a minute here. Cause I don't know anything about him, but also it was designed to be anti-riot because you know, Don, the riots and the residents, that's a, that's a thing. And, and, awesome. and so people, yeah. So people would avoid trying to like, no one wanted to be in South residence because, um, cause of the weird, like architectural design. It was all done in towers. You had to go up um stairs like six flights of stairs to get to the top of the tower and the whole tower was the house of people living together um Mm. so yeah so anyway i've never i don't know anything about like nc state residences either um like i don't which is probably a good thing um
0: well the and my my only knowledge of Rutgers residence is not, honestly comes through my kids having stayed in them. Before 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 that I really didn't know anything about them. And I still don't really know that much.
1: Yeah. It's weird. You work here, I don't live here. <laughs> right. right, I'm not Exactly. Um so uh real time follow up um not only does it appear that um John Andrews has not actually designed any um prisons. I, I will um uh, say that he um did design the CN tower. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. On, on Canada's, uh, la- or well, I, I, I say Canada because that's obviously I'm from the city of Toronto where that's the center of Canada. Um, but, uh, Toronto's, um, uh, skyline landmark, the CN tower, that was, uh, a let's say John, um, uh, sorry. What's John Andrews, Andrews. Ar- architect, uh, design. uh yeah. He died peacefully in his hometown of orange, uh, just recently, uh, this uh this past year on march 24th oh, r.i.p. RIP, to RIP. The real one. r.i.p. born out for john andrews um tower designer not uh prison designer ah <laughs> so well that don, took a turn yeah that sure did did didn't it um so so don i um i i got to hang out with you this week or last week i well, guess you know i was yeah. thinking about this
0: like it's been really interesting like you and i have hung out recently we talked a
1: bunch but it's been a long time since we've done a food safety talk right right well just you and i because we did right. a food safety talk uh, last episode was um with uh um with our friend Hannah Raskin who talked right. about being right. a food right. writer yeah um but yeah we haven't done like a just you and me hanging out food safety talk for for a long time so this is i mean we're going og um with this one original, original gangsta style, um, gangnam style, um, uh, food safety talk. Um, so we hung out in person. Um, I think, uh, increasingly it's not as weird when you, you know, used to be, Yeah, when we, I not, think we've,
0: we've, we've yeah. worked it out.
1: Yeah. Right? Yeah. I like, I know how to talk to you. I know how to do a podcast with you in person with other people around and they don't know always that we're doing a podcast. Oh, right. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. Right. Like that's the best so and and i feel like um this this was best exemplified by um our dinner conversation at the IAFP banquet <laughs> because I, that very much was us be being doing a podcast with other with a small audience of people just yes. at our table yeah uh, but we were we got to hang out in um in the lovely Akron Canton uh and, and well not so much Cleveland area but I, we did fly in and out of Cleveland last week and we um visited with uh our friends at Gojo um talked about a lot about hand hygiene and it was i was a lovely time and and one of the one of the cool parts of this meeting um for for me was that we you and I got to to stay in a in a in a house together um on a vineyard in a in a vineyard or on a, I guess it's on a vineyard um on the vineyard property with mm-hmm. uh, a couple of our food safety friends and it was we we had a meeting one day in, in the house that we were staying in which was kind of cool and it was really low low key and I I enjoyed um I enjoyed hanging out with you and then I drove you around it was your chauffeur yeah that uh, was as nice as well that was
0: nice it was a it was fun it was it was, a, it was a good event um and uh yeah and we got to talk a lot about food safety uh we got to talk a lot about chick-fil-a we got to talk a lot about chipotle um which actually um kind of kind of r- brings me to the first thing that i'd like to talk about
1: oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, is it about is, uh, let me guess is it about the new york daily post
0: well, it is about it's about it's about uh, it's about um, some text messages um, from a friend of the show, um, Dane Jensen. And uh, Dane Dane uh, opens with, uh, "Don, you're all cool with Chipotle, da?" Um, <laughs> which is sometimes the way he talks to me because he's a little weird. Um, yes. Yeah. And so uh, I don't know. But did you have a chance to check out any of those any of those links?
1: I did. Yeah. I mean, I I didn't read. So what, what, um, uh, what, what Dane was referring to is a New York post article last week, um, New Jersey Chipotle manager fired for calling out lax food safety standards, according to a suit. So I'll I'll read from the, from the article here, manager at the Chipotle says she was fired for speaking about, about the company's laissez-faire attitude towards food safety, including managers regularly fudging records about critical health checks, according to a lawsuit, Quincy Boston 20, a former service manager, claims she was forced out of the company on May 23rd after calling out lax food safety standards she witnessed at the chain Springfield, New Jersey location. And this isn't like um, you know, it's not it's not verified at all, but there's a lawsuit, right? So we know about this because um she filed a lawsuit uh in a Union County Superior Court um in Union County, New Jersey. Uh, she claims she witnessed managers regularly, regularly forging records and and indicating they conducted food temperature checks and other legally required safety inspections. The suit says, um, in one disturbing, and this one's kind of interesting, uh, one disturbing incident managers didn't make sure customers vomitus in the store had been properly cleaned up resulting in Boston, getting sick at work herself. Um, and then, uh, she started in a management position, said she was concerned. She had complained many times, and that uh, uh you know, apparently she was um, you know, she she was fired uh, as or pushed out as a as a result of this. So yeah, 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 I mean, i I, I read about it. I haven't mm-hmm. seen much coverage. Uh, Dane did some digging for us, found the lawsuit. um, and so uh, you know, a lot of i I scrolled through this. Yesterday And a lot of what's in here is um, similar to what, um, you know, what's reported in the, um, in, you know, in, in the uh, New York uh, Daily Post. New York Post uh, New York article. Post, yeah, so yeah. The,
0: yeah, the Daily Daily News and the New York Post yep. those are separate newspapers. They're <laughs> different. Yeah. <laughs> for yep. for yep. those of you who live in New, Jer- New, New New York or New Jersey and are about to send Ben a correction. But yeah, so, you know, and 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 Dane uh he does say um he links He 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 sends us the post link and he says, "But that's the New York Post, which is a garbage newspaper," um and then he goes on to find the uh the actual um uh lawsuit, which which if the if these allegations are true, it's not, it's not good. Right. Like telling, yeah. telling people to clean up, uh, vomit without a proper PPE, PPE. or a spill kit, like that's, you know, and then, and then once the cleanup was complete, um, uh, management instructed the employee to return to the line where they continued cooking and serving food. Uh, no, that's not good. Right. And so, right. Right. And, yeah. And, and I, I am I'm, I'm really curious how far up the chain this goes corporate wide, because I really do think the folks at the top of the, you know, pyramid there at the top of the ship, they know what they're doing, but this is, uh, yeah, this is, this is not good. Right. And so this is, this is some, this, this, this indicates some problems at least within, um, some, some part of the management structure in some stores. Right.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah. And, and I, and I think about this, you know, we, over the last couple of weeks, um, well, or last week, we, I was in you know the the meeting with you and um, and our friends at, at Gojo, and then I went to um, Las Vegas uh, and went to the um, National Association of Convenience Stores NACS um, meeting, and and they NACS held their first ever food safety like summit for C conven- store convenience store um, food safety folks. And, and you know in that in that session, um, uh, you know, another one of our friends, Lone Jesperson, talked a lot about work that she's doing in food safety culture. And this is one that I, I think about exactly where where your comments are are landing, right? Like they are they're, they're really good folks who um, design and focus on standard operating procedures and are really intent on making sure that food safety culture becomes like a corporate value. Uh, and then, you know, if if something like this is is true, it kind of highlights the um, the challenges. Where how do you how do you get past one or two managers or one person within a system that has a, a position of power that's like, yeah, all of that stuff is is hooey. And, and, you know, I'm we're just gonna, we know that how to game the system and, and it's more important that we get people back to work because we're bonused on, you know, good, good customer experiences and how quick our food is kind of thing, right? Like not, not food safety metrics or that, that, um, that complicating priority um, uh, competition, right? Like that, which is, you know, uh, not providing PPE for someone to clean up vomit, getting them back on the line, meaning like, go out there, do the job and then get back and do this job. I don't like, I don't believe that that's something that is pervasive throughout the, the entire corporate culture. I don't think it's pervasive through any like food corporate culture that I've, you know, been part of or, 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 know of or heard anybody report on but it it all can fall apart at one unit that that ends up in in a lawsuit right like that that everybody um everybody kind of points to and says okay well if this is happening here what's the response right corporately and then what's corporate what what, what's corporate chipotle doing to make sure that this isn't pervasive throughout other units that this is one bad actor did you
0: did you just Verb the noun bonus at the start
1: of that round. Oh, for sure I did. For sure I did. I verb. <laughs> I verbed a bonus. you get bonused on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Provided. I'm sorry, provided. I didn't. After you said that, I I couldn't
0: think you, of anything else. You tuned but, out. Uh, no, no. Yeah. But and, so, and just before we completely leave this this topic, I I'm just amazed. Like, and of course, it's not surprising, but I'm amazed that that. An organization called NACS exists, and also I'm real. I'm really impressed that they own convenience.org as their domain, right? Oh yeah. But looking at their webpage, um, advancing convenience and fuel retailing. What a weird and interesting business. Yes. Uh, uh, And and and, uh, and and trade group, right? Like because if you think about it, like convenience store, there's a weird intersection of convenience stores with our world of food safety, but then like the whole fuel thing, like that's like 50% or more of what it is that they exist to do, which has nothing to do with our world of food safety. Right. Right. Um, right. I, I, it's I, I just, yeah, it, it's, it, it seems, just seems fascinating to think about that. Okay. This is a business that exists um, because we have cars and we need to go places and they need fuel. And, and by the way, you might want to snack while you're there. Right.
1: Well, yeah. And, and I mean, and, and like, uh, I guess things that I've learned, I didn't, I didn't go to the, the NACS show as it's known. If you yep. look in the top left corner yep. that that's happening right now, it started yesterday. I, I left, um, I was there for food safety day. And then I, then I flew home overnight. Cause I had Don, you know, you know, I gotta, I gotta coach hockey games. Right. So I had, I had three hockey games to coach yesterday. Um, yeah. Which was, I mean, truthfully was awesome. Like it, 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 it could not have, I, I was very, I was very happy to be able to be part of this like food safety day. There was probably, um, 50 or 60 attendees from a whole, you know, a a bunch of like regional, um, uh, convenience store gas station places that you'd recognize, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like that were, that were there all the, as you're driving, right. Like there, this is the place where, um, you see, you see convenience stores and and gas stations. And so it was cool. And then I, I flew home, um, red eye and, and, uh, I, I will report here for the first time publicly that, um, both of the teams that I coached this weekend, they went, uh, they went four wins, zero losses. So big, Big weekend in the Chapman household of uh, of good hockey games, um, wow! So like I'm, I guess what what you're saying is you can be a good hockey coach even after taking a red eye. Yes, yes, I can, I can, uh, absolutely. Uh, and so, um, but so I missed, and and I want to go next year um, to this show because I want to see what it looks like inside. Because this, you're you're right that this it, it's very adjacent to our world, but I think increasingly it's more. Exactly square in our world with the amount of food preparation. That's happening in convenience stores and gas stations that you wouldn't think about. Like, I jokingly, I talked to a couple of folks um about this, and I wouldn't, you know, I'll say it here because this is our podcast, but I wouldn't have said it in the room. Like, you know, what what are we what are we talking about here? Like hot dog rollers, like and, and nacho yeah. cheese, but but it's not, and in fact, it, it increasingly is not. It's uh fresh salads, it's commissaries that are being run that are supporting multiple outlets that are um, doing maybe not just minimal food prep, but some, you know, like actual sandwich preparation. There are things I learned just hearing the discussions, um, which makes a lot of sense. And I hadn't really thought about it. Like I've I've stopped at a gas station or two, Don, on my road trips. And sometimes you find a gas station that's got a convenience store and it has a subway in it, or it has a Burger King in it, right? Because that store is a franchisee as well. Um, and so there, there's some real interesting, like, you know, situations can arise where the, the franchise that they are hosting has maybe similar, but not exactly the same food safety practices standards. And there's a conflict that can arise mm-hmm. um, there. Um, but the thing that, that I think interests me the most about, I, I guess there's two things um, that, that I'm most interested in when it comes to NACs as, as an organization is I think that from, you know, reading and trying to pay attention to what's happening in the trend, like food trends, more and more fresh, either food preparation or just the fresh retail sales of food, fresh fruits and vegetables, raw meats. That's happening at convenience stores almost like cyclical, right? Like, I, even if you look at the NAX um, uh, website. The, the tagline for this year's show is full speed ahead of in, into the future. But they say from the first corner ice shop that sold milk, bread, and eggs after grocery stores closed in 1913 to the full service chains offering fresh meals, multiple fuel options and touchless ordering and payment options of today, the convenience industry has been moving full speed ahead into the future for more than a century. And it's and I see very much in especially like in rural um rural communities with low socioeconomic demographics that have food deserts, there is an increasing market for fresh food at convenience stores at like gas stations. And I kind of want to be there in the food safety world and for what I do in my department, looking at nutrition and behavior and local food systems to just better understand this like convenience store world and where they're going. Um, and some of the folks that I talked to this week, they see like they see that they are a restaurant first and they happen to sell fuel and tobacco on the side Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and others see themselves as we're a fuel stop and other people are selling food. So we need to sell food and figure out how to be like, how to provide restaurants. And it's Mm -hmm. all over the place, right? Like it's different, different kind of views. So it was cool. It was really like just being in the room for this like inaugural meeting um, and hearing some of the stories and concerns I thought was really, was really cool. interesting. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. So, so that's my next now, now Don, I, and I won't say this to my friends at, at Nax, but I will again, tell you here, Vegas is not my scene. Vegas, baby. No, no go. Yeah. Um, my, my, my hotel, Don had a, um, had a variety of things in it that I'll, I'll share with you. Um, had many people, many lights, uh, lots of, okay. lots of alarms or wow. dinging, yep. uh, people, people winning a lot of things. Yep. Um, uh, one thing that is, uh, very, very common in the hotel that I stayed at with the casino is, um, is smoking, uh, yep. yep. a <laughs> lot of, a lot exactly. of smoking. Yep. Yep. Um, a, a large sports book, um, which, which, you know, I like, I like my sports ball, Don, mm-hmm. right um it was overwhelming to walk into this this room uh on saturday during um the nc state uh football game oh yeah because i mean don it must have been like it was like walking into an imax theater but like six imax theater screens all side by side all showing wow. different football games in different like spots like i mean it must have been 60 football games that were on that people were betting on it was overwhelming it was like a sensory what what are those S- sensory overload were there the yep. sensory deprivation um containers is the opposite of that right <laughs> um and then um surprisingly um Don there was a tattoo parlor in the lobby of my of, of my hotel <laughs> so he got so you got you got some ink I got some ink um there was a sock store. Okay. So, so if you want some, like you want socks, if you go to, I mean, here, here's the scenario, right? You've gone to Vegas and you forgot your socks. <laughs> um, don't have no fear. The Westgate hotel has a sock store for all of your sock needs. Um, And, uh, and, and there was, uh, it was just an inch. Oh, oh. And uh, Barry Manilow plays there. This no. is, he's got a residential um thing where, where he plays, I don't know, five nights a week or something. Uh, So if
0: you, if you were, if you were, had some sort of weird confluence of like, you really liked socks, you like to bet on sports and you like Barry Manilow. um, That would have been, you you would have been like right in like your sweet spot.
1: Yes. Yes. This, this is the place for you. Um, It it, it is uh, it was something else. So I, um, I did not go see Barry Manilow. Um, I didn't see him walking around at all. (laughs) Um, either he didn't come to your talk, I did not come to my talk. Um, I've learned just as we talk about this, Don, that I probably needed to be there in December because December 8th to to 10th, he will be performing a very berry Christmas holiday show. Um, which, uh, good ding ding props to that. Um, so yeah, uh, anyway, that was that was my. That, that that was my my Vegas experience. Um and uh yeah, so I'm anyway, I was I'm happy to be home. But but I I like that all being said, being I liked what I saw and experienced from Nax. Like I, I I thought it was really it was really cool because they're trying to find like I, I think about them as an industry sector. Not unlike you know what when I work with the National Restaurant Association or with AFI or with um the FMI, the Food Marketing Institute, these different trade associations, they they are looking for, you know, they're looking for the helpers, right? Who are mm-hmm. who are the people who are not in our world who are scientists that know what we work on or what our business looks like? And there's not a lot of like I don't know anybody who's got convenience store food safety in there like in their bio. Um, and and so, so they're, they're like, well, who, where do we find people to help us with some of the science and social science issues that we're, that we're, Mm -hmm. you know, struggling with. And yeah, it was, it was cool. It was really good to be there. So I put up a big, um, uh, plug in for all of our, um, colleagues and friends at land grant institutions. And I was like, you know, I gave a talk and I talked about hand-washing and, um, and some of the work that we've been doing in our in our kitchens and just you know a little little bit of um things that I think are are important um in a community source setting like norovirus mm-hmm. and um and uh, and I said here's here's the deal also it's not it's not just me out there like go to your land grant institution every state has a land grant institution um almost every one of those states also has someone who, who's working At least they may not be working directly in like retail food safety, um, but, but they're adjacent to it and they can help you. And so, so find our friends out there in your, in your States. And so, so maybe, maybe our friends, our food safety friends will get calls from, uh, from folks who are in the C store world soon because yeah, they need help. They need help. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Um, you want to talk about butterboards? (laughs) Oh yes. Let's talk about butterboards. So, um, and I've got, I went into a a TikTok rabbit hole this week, Don, and to to, well, over the last couple of weeks. Um, But one thing that I wasn't aware of was a trend on TikTok, which I'm now very much familiar with um, after uh, talking to um, a New York Times journalist, um, Amelia, um, and um, about uh, Amelia Nirenberg um, uh, about like butterboards. And so Amelia, she and I have talked a few times. She reached out to me and said, um, I, you know, I'm writing about butterboards, this new social media trend where you decorate butter into a charcuterie pattern. Um, and, uh, she wanted to talk about, you know, risks and, and I, you know, I'd sent I'd actually, um, sent her a risky or not episode that we just did on, mm-hmm. uh, purple butter. A redditor's purple butter and and talk through some of the the science of the safety of butter and really she she wanted to know how long can you leave butter out at room temperature what's the best way to clean the board which I didn't really answer because I don't I'm not that's not in my world um and then but most of our conversation which didn't end up making the piece in the New York Times was why do we and you I'll put that in air quotes have butter misconceptions like why is there why do if if it's not a risky pro- process? sorry, not a risk, like not a risky um, practice of, of leaving. And I'll, I'll be real like clear in my words, like leaving salted butter out um, at room temperature for a long time. Why do people, why are people weirded out by it? And, and so we, we talked a little bit about, about that, but I wanted to get your thoughts about butter boards and then talk about dairy and butter misconceptions a little bit. Yeah. Well, and we should point out um, and what,
0: yeah. So first of all, like props to our colleague, Bill Hallman, who sent us um, something from the wire cutter um, on the best cutting boards. And and he, he said, you know, something about butter boards. And then you said, Oh, and by the way, I talked to somebody else um, with, from New York times about it. And so, and, and it sounds like you were also misquoted, right? I was, but, but it Which, happens. But Well, right. But I think, but I think we should talk about it because it, it actually goes to, um, it goes to people's misconceptions around this. Right. And so let me see if I can find it. Do you, do you oh, have yeah, your misquote? Yeah.
1: yeah. So, so, um, the, in the article, Amelia says salted butter is safe to leave out for four hours at room temperature said Benjamin Chapman, oh, right. uh, the, yeah, the department head of agricultural and human Got sciences. Right. North Carolina, yeah. North Carolina state university. Um, and, uh, you know, she, she says, um, unlike the average American who prefers to keep their butter at much cooler temperatures, people in many other Western countries often leave butter out on the counter for easy spreading. And actually the quote that I did like Dawn, is what mm-hmm. happens next, which yep. is, I said, this is not something that would make my yep. top 20 list or top 50 list of risky things. Yep. Um, yep. yeah. And, and cause we, we talked for, you know, 20 or 30 minutes and, and I, I felt like a lot of what we do on risky or not is what I have. I approached a lot of, um, interviews recently, which is right. what is the path to risky? Right. right. Um, and, and, and I think this one's not, not risky, but yeah, I, um what, yeah. what, yeah. So I'm, let's, yeah, you go ahead. I, I that's the quote. You Yeah. You talk- and so I think what, what you said and what
0: they, what they, what was mistranscribed is what, what you, what you said was unsalted butter can be yes. left out for four hours. Right. And, and so, and the reason for the four hours is like, that's kind of the, the food code limit right the outside limit yeah. in the food code we tell consumers you know 2 hours or 1 hour in warm weather just to be conservative um but really that's for unsalted butter where there is a there is a possibility if pathogens are there that they might grow and we've we've sort of we've 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 talked about salted butter and unsalted butter before on on risky or not um i think we we i think what you would have said uh is that salted butter, butter can be left out at room temperature full stop right like uh, because it because since it is salted now again you know thinking about the path to risky you know first thing you say when you say butter outbreak uh food safety people talk about well there was an outbreak in finland in people in a hospital and listeria and butter and it's like okay yeah but that was people in a hospital and there was some manufacturing defect it wasn't it wasn't temperature abuse necessarily of the butter um but yeah i think i think salted butter is relatively safe i think unsalted butter made from pasteurized milk is also quite safe um you probably could even leave um, unsalted butter out for extended periods of time. Now where, where it gets interesting, I think is, well, what else are you putting on that butter? Yeah. Um, What is getting into that butter? Um, How are are you able to clean the butter um, to get it off the board? If not, then, well, you've got some fat and maybe some protein residual Um, You don't really have moisture, but maybe if you have add moisture from a food, I'm just, I'm trying to think about like what are, again, like you said, what's the path to risky, right? What are the the components of doing this that would lead us to risk? And it's, it's pretty hard, right? Like I said, I think you're right. I think that it's not in the top 20, or maybe even in the top 50 risk of things that that people might, people might do. So, so yeah, so I mean, you know, it's a, it's a trend, it's a TikTok trend or whatever. So yeah, go for it. It's fine. Um, yeah, I mean, the, you know, the, the, there is another TikTok trend, um, making over the top compound butters. Now that I think might get kind of interesting, right? Because with a compound butter, you're actually adding a bunch of stuff and now you're sort of breaking that, uh, preservative system. So I would, uh, there, I would be a little bit more suspicious or a little bit more cautious. And and there it kind of gets into the, and I'm wearing even wearing my shirt today. Um, it's complicated and it depends territory, right? Because right, it really right. depends on what you are using to make your compound butter, how you're making it, how you're handling it after you make it, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Yeah. Um, and, and I'll, I'll send you a link to, um, eater.com. And this is something that Amelia Nuremberg uh, shared with me. It's got a pretty good set of screenshots. So you can see what people are doing and it very much, it walks this line of compound butter and, um, and just butter with stuff on top of it. Um, edible flowers. And in fact, that's what I talked to Amelia about. Like she sent me a couple of videos and I was like, I think the riskiest thing in this, in this butter board is not the butter at all. It's not even the interface. It's like edible flowers that like, what are the, what what are the, like, how are they being cultivated? How are they being handled? Are they really truthfully edible? right? Like what that, that's the, you know, was riskier um, to me than, than holding butter out on a butter board for indefinitely is, you know, where, where we had kind of talked. And yeah, I, and, and I, to, yeah, just,
0: just to clarify, you're talking about edible flower, F-L-O-W-E-R as in the pretty thing that is a plant that grows, not correct F-L-O-U-R, uh, which is uh, made from grains and is not nearly as colorful. And yeah, and I've talked, I think it would be really interesting to do some food safety research on edible flowers. In fact, I've talked with our colleague uh, Marcy Magnani from uh, Brazil. Uh, She has some interest in this. We haven't really got to the point of doing a project yet, but um, you know, it, it is it is interesting, right? Like like if you are growing, like first of all, there's a toxicological issue, right? Are, are you sure this is a flower that is toxicologically safe for humans, right? Um, right? But then also, okay, well, how are you producing these flowers? Are you producing them in an environment where you are producing food or are you producing them in an environment where you're making pretty things that you're gonna plant in your yard, right? And, and if you're just using any old flowers for your edible flowers, well, I that, that could be potentially problematic. So I think it'd right. be right. really interesting to go and do just a survey, right? Just go out and survey, find some edible find you know uh, how, how you know figure out how to do a, a sensible survey of edible flowers and look uh, look at the microbiology
1: yeah and and just like yeah understand that more right uh and what you might be adding into that that interface of that like and and even what what i told amelia was like i'm not even worried about salted butter putting a bunch of stuff on top because even if the water like it's more about the water that's being added from the other stuff, not the butter itself. Um, So, yeah. So anyway, I got what what was really interesting. Like, I mean, I saw the article and I usually don't do this, but I have a pretty good, like I've talked to Amelia a few times. And so I emailed her back um, and I was like, Hey, just like a heads up. Don't like, I'm, I'm not expecting anything here. Um, But just a quick correction, you can use it however you want. I meant to say that salted butter is good to be at at room temperature for way longer than four hours. Like it doesn't need temperature control at all. And unsalted to be safe, to to be less risky, you could go with, with just four hours. Um, and then, you know, I was expecting maybe to see like a little, like, you know, thing at the bottom of the article, that's like a previous version of this article had this information, you know, in it, and it's corrected to this because the New York times is pretty good at that, but I haven't heard anything back, but what was really interesting on this one too, I almost never get like just random people emailing me. And I got a message yesterday, or maybe it was on Saturday that said, dear Dr. Chapman, you are cited in the WAPO article referenced below, which um the um they link to the New York Times article. Uh the WAPO,
0: which, otherwise known as the New York Times. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um
1: for, yeah, I can see how you get those two confused. Yeah. I forgive me, but I had to laugh gently at your comment about unrefrigerated butter being safe for just four hours. I keep a stick of salted butter in a covered dish at room temperature until it is gone and then replace it with another stick. In the summer, my house averages 75 degrees, and in winter, 67. I've done this for decades, as do my grown kids. We are all still alive and well. I realize the bits of leafy and onions and so forth may change the equation a bit because it can dry out over the long term. Mold, but the butter itself is fine. And I responded to Bridget and I was like, Yes, yes, you're exactly right. I was misquoted about this. Yep. Um, and I said, I think what you're doing is not risky at all, and it's exactly what I do. And I think what the risk is go. it's gonna go rancid first, yeah. Um, so so anyways, but but that like here here you go, right? Like the the this this one, the misquote or miscontext, I guess, of the comment. Um Get, you know, got in front of someone and then all of a sudden this person felt like, I don't know, like passionate enough to email me about it to say, I disagree yeah. with you. Right. Yeah. And it's Good like, you. Yeah. I, yeah. And I'm like, I, I disagree with me too. Uh, the way that it was said there that was quoted. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I think that's, that's butterboards. I, I want to also say, um, I, and I sent you a link to this, this, this person. Um, mm-hmm. but I am, obsessed with someone um who is unnamed uh is anonymous um but he does um uh like tick tocks of um like uh, other um
0: other oh, yeah. TikToks
1: about cooking i'm like trying to yep. figure out what to like how to Explain this his name. He yeah, does
0: like so yeah. so for people that, uh, that know TikTok, there, there is a thing called a duet, right? Yes. And a duet is you can basically put your video in somebody else's audio or you can do side-by-side video. And this guy does duets where he basically looks at somebody preparing a recipe. And yeah, and I have I've seen this fellow as well. And I shared with you, there's another guy that does duets uh with people People that are making uh, alcohol uh, cocktail drink recipes, which is also quite good. And uh, yeah, well done. You know, if somebody is has has sort of a good a good sense of humor and has something to add to the conversation, these duets can be can be quite interesting. And and yeah, and I have uh, I have also seen this guy, and I think I might even follow him on TikTok.
1: He his name is Chef Reactions. Um,
0: Chef Reactions, right? Like, yeah,
1: he's got like two two million followers. I think he's hilarious. Um, and I, and I, I mean, these, these videos are, are phenomenal. Like every, almost every video he's got like a million or so views on this. So he's, he's way out there. Um, but he, you know, someone tags him in a comment, then he does a three minute duet where he just gives, you know, his deadpan chef reaction. And he, you know, I linked to, um, an article that came out earlier this year, excuse me in, in july that you know he the, he's anonymous like i mean i'm sure people know who he is like and someone yeah. who would recognize him but he doesn't put his name He doesn't say where he works no one seems to know it the only thing i do know from his instagram is he's located in canada and it's i don't know if you you picked that up don but he he, he has a um, like i think he's either from toronto or montreal um mm-hmm. montreal would be my my guess and he wears um like a bunch of major league baseball fitted baseball hats and Toronto Blue Jays and Montreal Expos uh, are prominent. He also wears a bunch of other ones, but he's just, he's awesome. And he's got like some food safety content. So Mm -hmm. um, there's a couple of of these, I'm not going to be able to find them for show notes. So you got to watch them all if you're listening to this Mm -hmm. and do it because it's worth it. But he often talks about like salmonella hands or salmonella cutting words like don't do oh there's the salmonella board but he also has like you know um some of his like more um egregious things that he sees every time is like people using powdered salt or garlic powder or using uh tiktok videos are famous for like a bowl of something and being mixed into another bowl so he just constantly like notes bowl to a bowl bowl to a bowl, bowl to another, bowl, bowl. Bowl. right. Another, you don't bowl need to bowl. do that. Yeah. Yeah. You're just making more dishes for yourself. Another yeah. bowl. And then knife skills. He's always calling people out on the knife mm-hmm. skills. You're gonna lose a finger maybe. Yeah. So, um, uh, and, yeah, you know, and
0: one, one looking I'm so I'm looking at his, his TikTok account and one of the, uh, video, uh, uh, piece people he often or not often, but one of the people he has done duets with more than once is, Uh, a wonderful uh, TikTok, which I highly recommend that everybody follow, which is called what my 78 year old French grandpa had for lunch. Yes. For lunch. What? And and this is just this wonderful French gentleman who grows his own herbs and uh, his doesn't speak really any English and his uh, granddaughter videotapes him. And and, oh, my God, I want to have lunch with this guy every day.
1: And, and chef reactions love him. He loves him. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's like, this guy is great. He, he you know, he, and he also loves, there's a woman um, who's an uh, Italian uh, grandmother, Nona, who mm-hmm. also makes a lot of uh, pasta and, uh, and he loves her too. He's like this, you know, he, so he's, he does some really nice ones. He eviscerates other people, yep. Um. but what he likes, he really likes. And I, I just find yep. his commentary. I think it's really funny. And my favorite part is he doesn't take himself too seriously either. Like mm-hmm. he's like he'll he'll ser- certainly like look at people's techniques and what they're making but he'll often give something that's like uh you know two out of ten but i'd eat it right or i'd try it right like right. and right. and i think that that's pretty i don't know i think it's funny i'm obsessed with this guy like mm-hmm. like he i would i kind of want to reach out to chef reactions and talk to him about food safety because yeah, this sure. yeah this is the kind of guy that that we need to need we need to know more about um and my uh um yeah I, I my 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 friend um chidi kumar who um we we had uh, on a symposium panel at uh, IAFP, who's a who's a chef here in raleigh we talked a little bit about that in one of our episodes a, a few months ago um I'd sent her this guy's um, Instagram and I was like, this is what we need to do for food safety. And she's like, yes, this is amazing. So she was, she was a big fan too. So it's like, even people in the culinary world kind of get this, um, like this, just this, this take on home cooking, it's, it's very, um, uh, it's credible and it's convincing. And this guy does a great job. So yeah, yeah so check out Chef Reactions. Um, What, what else is, what, what else is going on? I haven't looked in our, in our Dropbox, does anybody put anything in there? Oh, some yes. There's
0: a, there's a bunch of stuff in there, um, I, I'm, which we could talk about, um, in, including some some feedback. But I'm actually interested in um the, the FDA review panel. Oh yeah. In, what What do you think about that?
1: Well, I don't know. Let's you. Why don't you set it up? Because and let me okay. look look up what's happening here. So, yeah, so I'll I'll read from the the document that we
0: put in the uh, show notes, which is an article from uh, Marler Clark, uh, Food Safety News. Um, And it says uh, it's uh, dateline uh, November or November, right? Uh, September 8th, 2022. So this is uh, about a month ago, um, uh, members of FDA review panel named, and it says the Reagan Udall Foundation has announced five members of an independent expert panel who will conduct an operational evaluation of the Food and Drug Administration's human foods program. Uh, Jane Henney, uh, who I don't know, former FDA commissioner, was named as the chair of the panel last month. Um, and then other people on the panel, some of whom we know, uh, first of all, Francisco Diaz-Gonzalez, who is the director of the Center for Food Safety at University of Georgia, formerly of University of Minnesota. So he's uh, he's a, a good food safety guy that we know. Uh, the other food safety person that we know here is Barbara Kowalczyk. Uh, and Barbara is the director of the Center for Foodborne Illness Research and Prevention at Ohio State. And uh, she is, a uh, one again, one of our, food safety uh, colleagues. The other folks I don't know: uh, J- James Jones, uh, who is a consultant who used to work for EPA. Um, Shiriki Kumanyika, Sh- Kuman-yika uh, is a research professor at Drexel uh, with background in um, uh doesn't say. Oh, public health. Uh, she's at, she's in uh, public health school, public health at Drexel. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah. So epi- epidemiologist basically, and then John Taylor, uh, JD, uh, principal of a, uh, consulting company for 20 years at FDA and is, uh, obviously with the JD after his name is a lawyer. So, um, yeah, so I don't know. What, what do you think?
1: So, um, you know, I think, uh, I've followed this a little bit. Um, and I think that everybody is, um, I think really interested in addressing some, uh, I guess, cultural and structural issues at FDA, right? And it, and it runs this, um, it's been a conversation that's been going on for a long time that, that runs from the way that FDA is structured, the folks that are involved in food safety don't really have any power to make, um, they, 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 they don't have power in the, in the field. And to we should have food safety all under one federal agency. So there's consistency from FDA to USDA to even EPA um, and looking at food safety issues to um, the system is all broken and we, you know, we need to, um, to like figure out how to restructure everything. And I, I don't know um but if if that's yeah. what you're trying to do
0: I mean you you can't you can't fix the lack of integration with USDA by restructuring FDA right right so but- if so I don't know it's un- and we don't really have I mean the, the the article from food safety news is pretty short on content other than listing the names and the qualifications. The, the, they link to a, a page on the Reagan Udall Foundation website when the um, Jane Henney was announced as the leader of the panel, um, which talks a little bit more about what they're going to do, but um, you know, structured leadership, authorities, resources, culture, recommendations that would equip FDA to carry out its regulatory responsibilities strengthen relationship with state and local governments, uh, excluding uh, cosmetic and dietary supplements. Okay. But I just, I don't know. I mean, you know, I've been part of these panels and they go and do good work. And I'm not sure if anything ever really just yeah, sometimes do things change, but uh, things do change, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I, it's not, yeah, I, I'm whatever. I, I shouldn't, I shouldn't prejudge, but hopefully they'll do something useful that will actually get implemented.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and and I think that's right. The, the, that's it. I don't, I'm, I'm like always, I guess I'm optimistic, right. Mm -hmm. That this would, this will actually um, result in something, but I, I don't know. I I, I agree with your comments that maybe the, the, if, if we fast forward to the end of this and the report says FDA and USDA need to be better um, aligned, better they need to work together, they need to be structured together, but it's out of scope for Reagan Udall, the, the, this group to, to really look at USDA, that something needs to happen that involves USDA. Then I think that's, I think that's okay. Right. Like, like, because although there's been a lot of calls from outside of the agency um, and the world of food safety to, to have sort of one single agency, I don't think that we've ever had a what does FDA think specifically about that? Mm -hmm. And, and this is, I don't know, it's all part of the process. It's a long game, right? Right. Um, But I don't know. I mean, I'm, I, I didn't watch any of the, like, I didn't watch any of the comments. I actually couldn't find too many, um, too much coverage of what was said in the public meeting um, the last week on this. Uh, And, and so I'm, you know, I don't know, I don't know where it's, I don't know where it's going to go, but Yeah. Food safety. um, One of the things that Doug Powell uh, taught me a long time ago was uh, food safety um, almost always boils down to politics and trade. And this is one where it's boiling down to to politics. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And, and it's, and yeah, and it's all, it's, I mean, it's all in the game, right. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, like, I don't know. Even you know, so did you did you see the um the speakers who spoke at the public meeting who were invited on I this? I sent you a link. Okay, did so not. this was um last so September 30th, um and September 29th, there was a public meeting and that included oh, uh Bill okay. Bill I did. Yeah, yeah, I did.
0: I did. Because because I was thinking Jen McIntyre's name and then, right.
1: And she was one of the yeah. people that spoke. So, yep. Yeah. Mitzi, Scott Faber, Jen McIntyre, Caroline Smith, the wall, David Goldman. These are all folks who are like passionate food safety advocates and have been around the world of food safety for a long time. Right. So, and, and I think they're all coming from different perspectives. So, um, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, it'll be, I'm not sure what those comments were again, but it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in the um, in the report, right? And how uh, how these comments are um, are strung strung together. So, right,
0: right, and and yeah. you can, you have a little bit of a sense of the comments. I mean, like the Food Safety News article does a pretty good job, right? So Marler said it's past time to address the fragmented and illogical division of federal oversight of food safety. Um, for decades, multiple experts have needed to cited the need to revamp the food safety and quality of the U.S. food supply. Yeah, and he for sure, he, Bill's right about that. There's no shortage of expert reports that have that have said this this is broken and needs to be fixed. Right, but again, it's you know politics and trade. Right, what's what's the incentive that's going to make it happen? Right, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, so I mean, the, yeah, so I mean, obviously, this is uh, this is a, a day long session boiled down to maybe a. a 10 minute read, but I think you can see from the highlights where, where these folks are coming, coming from.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, the David Goldman, um, who was formerly, uh, the head of, um, FDA's office of food policy and response. Um, he, he talked about, And I think this is a, you know, a good, a good quote that kind of exemplifies the power structure within FDA and some of the, you know, the complications said, Mm -hmm. I want to offer something that may be a little more practical, but yet is still bold. I think I propose that all the functions related to say science, both research and regulatory lab operations, policy compliance, communications, response, consumer education, and most importantly, inspection be placed under one roof in a new center for food safety within the FDA. Right, to, to put all of the functions together with one director. And, um, and, and there's the yeah. earlier statement that he
0: made in his comments, uh, which I think is very telling, which is, uh, I made the observation that dotted lines on an org chart are very different than solid lines. And, and yes. I'll say, you know, and to me, what that says, my understanding of Frank Giannis's position at FDA is he's in charge of food safety, but all he has are dotted lines. Yep. Right. Yep. And yeah. that, and that makes it really hard for him to be any kind of a real leader because he doesn't really, he he's over, he's over food safety, but, but, but not with any actual power. Uh, again, this is, this is me editorializing. I don't know if that's actually true, but it's what I've, I've, what I've
1: heard about that position. Yeah. That, yeah. Again, that's
0: not a reflection on Frank. That's just a reflection
1: of the position. That's the structure, right? right. Like that's, yeah. Um, yeah uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, Don, like you you've been around food safety longer than I have. i've I've been in the world, you know a couple of decades, and I think that the excitement that I saw in two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine around the, well, let's say two thousand nine, two thousand and ten, maybe around FISma, um where you know, this was going to be FISma from a regulatory standpoint, it's going to be revolutionary, it's going to change things. People were really, really like excited about it on both sides, like excited, nervous, excited, upset, excited, yeah, this is going to fix things. Um, you know, fast forward to 12, 13 years later from those discussions, we're still not seeing the some of the practical changes that were enacted even over a decade ago fall, fall out. I, I see this as pretty analogous to that, right? Like no matter yeah. what this conversation is, the 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 practical changes and the impact on what we do daily, we might not see for a decade or two, if anything. Right. Right. Um it, you know, even even if there was just a massive restructure of FDA, that that takes time to change culture and yeah. Yeah, so so yeah. I don't know,
0: and you know, and there's a good, there's a good comment for, in the piece from Marler as well, who says that I believe that FISMA's failures are not due to the legislation, but really due to uh, leadership and you know fragmentation and et cetera, et cetera, and and Marler's suggestion, which I think is is a good one, and I think it's also echoed in some of the other commenters is we need it's it, it, maybe we need like two different commissioners, one for food and one for drugs. Right. And and we've we've joked before on the podcast how people have often referred to the FDA as the Federal Drug Administration. Right. Right. Uh, forgetting food entirely. And so uh, yeah and so so having someone who has leadership for food if, if the if the agency is' responsible for foods and drugs um, maybe separate that right because the way that you regulate food might be different than the way you regulate drugs and 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 separating that may may help both uh, both components
1: right right absolutely yep and and there was a whole bunch um, of uh, social media response to um, the like uh, infant formula, sort yeah. of world, not, you know, I, I guess started by Abbott labs, but certainly there's been a bunch of other recalls related to, um, coronobacter chronobacter, Sakazaki, um, Sakazaki, uh, and, uh, but there was a lot of social media sort of like put the F back into FDA, um, around it. So there, so it wasn't even just the FDA, yeah. F the FDA. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it was, but it wasn't just us in the food safety world. Right. Like that was, I think the interesting part about that, that discussion so yeah i mean maybe something comes out of this maybe not who knows and i, I always think about like our friends like we got a, n- a number of friends who work in fda how much this matters to them right like like and, and again Fires i'm not, not at all yeah right uh, not because it's just that, like
0: they're like that's like what they're doing is they're like steering the ship day by day. And what this group is doing is it's tracking something that is, you know, is miles away and might not even happen.
1: Right. And Yeah. And so, Oh man, it's so, yeah, I think it's so funny. I'm not funny, but, but that like, that's it, because they can't really focus on that. Um, they've got to focus on what they're doing daily, but we're talking about it, right? Like no one, I don't, I don't know. No one's talking about NC State um, stuff outside of, I don't know, the world of uh, sports. Like no one. No one's thinking about my job or how the structure of the university is out, like outside of the people in the university where I think this is going to be an odd situation where there's a whole public discussion about the agency that you work for that may or may not have an impact. Certainly in the short term, not almost not at all. But, um, but you know, I, I don't know. I, that, it's a weird meta thing to think about for me.
0: Um, so, so I would, I would like to talk about, um, food safety myths, consequences for health, which is oh, a yes. study yes. that, um, uh, that you apparently, uh, uh, rumor has it, um, would have rejected. I would have. So, yeah. So tell me what's your problem.
1: Okay. <laughs> so, so here's a paper that was in food control, a great yep. journal, like right. one that, that, that I I've got, I think there's really fantastic stuff in it and I guess maybe I wouldn't have rejected it, but I, well, no, I, I I'll say by that. I think in the form that it is, I would have rejected it because of the highlights. Okay. Um, and, and really the conclusions that the authors draw. And so let's walk through this paper a little bit. Um, the highlights and and again I'll I want to get into methodology here in a second cuz I think it matters um but a large share of the uk german and norwegian population believe in food safety myths okay check that checks okay. out I, and i understand how someone would get that don the next one is the one that i have the most amount of problem with mm-hmm. which is believing in many food safety myths correlates with gastroenteritis incidence and prevalence okay is that a, that, that's a, Hmm. Right there. That caught my eye. Okay. Like, because this is the world that I live in, right? What do people think about food safety and how does that impact what they do? And what are the outcomes? Um, and then the third bullet is large correlations observed for beliefs about eggs, bacteria activation, vegetarians and eating dirt. Okay. So whatever. Great. But Don, do you want to guess that? Okay. Actually not guess that. Cause you've read, you've read portions of this paper or, or the whole thing. Um, if you were to design a study that gets at highlight number one, what would you, how would you do that? How would you look for links between what someone believes in a food safety quote myth and what the outcome from a gastroenteritis situation would be? How would you, how would you measure that?
0: Well, I think you have to be really, you have to be really careful, right? Because there are I would start with figuring out what are the myths that are of interest. And I would make sure that those are vetted through experts, right? Um, because, you know, Ben, often what you and I do on risky or not is we will we will, you know, sort of blow up a, a common perception about something, right from from our perspective. And so, and I've been part of expert panels where we were asking, you know, you know, basically risky or not style questions for consumers. And I just didn't agree with a lot of the things that were just like very, very like conservative recommendations. Right. So I would start there, but then you've also got to have access. You you can't, I don't think you can use self-reported foodborne illness, right. You'd have to, you'd have to basically, yeah, you'd have to basically, it would be hard to do because you'd have to start with people, legitimately sick people that were sick, that, you know, got sick from food poisoning, or at least from foodborne disease agents. Right. And then interview those people. So it's, It's not a, it's a, it's a, it's an easy study to do poorly. I'm not sure it's a, it's a easy study to do well.
1: Yeah. And, and so I, I think the myth part was done well. I think here's where I, this paper falls apart for me, which is exactly what they are trying to like, look at. The objective is do myths correlate with the likelihood that someone got sick. Mm -hmm. And the way that they correlated that was by asking One question. Hmm. So tons of myths. And the one question was in the last year, how many times has someone in your household had a bad stomach bug with vomiting and diarrhea? The scale went from zero to 30 plus days. Hmm. Prevalence was operationalized as binary. Yes or no. So if someone had more than one, it was yes or no. (laughs) Um, uh, and and then the the um uh like not p- prevalence, but the um incident. Uh like incidence was was yes or no. And then the prevalence was um, you know, looking at the number of days related of gastro self-reported gastroenteritis incidents per household. I think this is super flawed. Now they they provide some justification. They say that this is actually. Um, consequences for for health were assessed with two standard epidemiological risk assessment endpoints, prevalence and incidence of acute infectious gastroenteritis, right? So they started with a WHO publication that says, if you want to know what a, a good measurement for consequence of health, you need to know about the prevalence and incidence of acute infectious gastroenteritis. I'm good with that. But the way that they asked it was, um. How many days did someone in your household have? Were they did they have vomiting or diarrhea, with a bad stomach bug? And that was it. Mm-hmm. There was nothing else. There, there, there was no other. So the entire and and I think like I look at this, the there the money shot for this is is table um five I think it is table four sorry which is the um. Um, Pearson correlation beliefs affect on incidence and prevalence of gastroenteritis in descending order of the coefficient values. Okay. And so there's a lot of um, things that they say are significant at the 0.01 level that I'll that I'll highlight um, vegetarians don't get food poisoning, more likely to have incidence of if you believe that more likely to have an incidence of gastroenteritis per household log transformed. Bacteria do not survive on wood wooden cutting boards, more likely. There might so Don, I guess maybe here's here's the thing. There might be something here, but by relying purely on the self-reported behaviors, making sweeping statements like again, directly from this believing in many food safety myths correlates with gastroenteritis incidence and prevalence. It doesn't, it correlates with self-reported gastroenteritis incidence and prevalence at the household level. That's it. And that doesn't mean the same thing to me. Like it's not, it's too far of a jump. And it kind of pissed me off when I read this.
0: Yeah. And I'm, I'm having trouble even understanding table four, because I don't understand. I don't understand what I I will trust them that the ones they've indicated are significant or significant. I need to look at what a Pearson correlation coefficient should be doing, but I don't understand I don't understand what those numbers mean. It's not like a P value, right? Where right, the lower right. the P value, the more the significance. Um, yeah. So yeah. And honestly, you know, you said you didn't have a problem with the food safety myth stuff. I think, I think I do, right? If you look at table two, which is the measures of food safety beliefs, yep, um, yep. there's a lot of stuff in here that is that is ambiguous at best. Fresh oh. food is always safer than frozen food.
1: No. Um, Right.
0: But I I don't know what I don't know what the correct answers are.
1: Right. How about this one? Yeah. Lemon kills bacteria. It depends, Ben. Right. Right. That's a really good point. will
0: kill some bacteria depending on the bacteria.
1: Right. All food should be kept at two degrees Celsius. What's the right answer?
0: I don't don't keep my cereal at two degrees. Right. 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 Bacteria bread at two degrees. Oh, my Um, gosh. I mean there's some that are obviously like washing your kitchen too often creates a sterile environment that's bad for building up your immune system. Okay, we can agree that's kind of nonsense, right? Um, yeah. being too clean is the cause of allergies. Well, that's the hygiene hypothesis. There actually is some science that supports that. Yep. Right? Yeah. Um, exposure to bacteria keeps our immune system strong. Well, it kind of that's a true statement. Not that we should be ingesting pathogens on purpose, but but yes, it does it does that is that is a true statement, I believe.
1: Don, I, I'm glad that like, so I, I kind of, I guess I glossed over these, but now that I look at it, I'm glad you, you stopped on this because number 41 is maybe one that I think is the best, which is any food that has fallen on the floor <laughs> and did not stay there longer than five seconds is still edible. And as, as you demonstrated, um, with, uh, with the great, uh, Robin, what's Robin's last name? Miranda. Miranda. yes that uh, that's a complicated it depends uh question that it matters the matrix matters yeah. um yeah and the, and the the and the flooring matters and what it, yeah and and there are like here's one that i don't even think is a food safety myth because it's not it's not um it's not phrased this this the, the, the right, right way to actually get it the best hangover breakfast is a raw, is a raw egg mm-hmm. right i maybe it is but the question is, is what's the risk risk trade-off, right? right like, right. like if, yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, and, yeah, and Only
0: point. only eat oysters if there's an R in the name of the month. Well, that actually is vaguely scientific because months with R's tend to be colder months where Vibrio is less likely to be in the water column. And they're so, yeah.
1: Well, and I, what about, what about steamed or cooked or deep fried oysters? Can I eat them? What's the difference? is this only about yeah. raw
0: oysters right like yeah raw yeah. is implied but yeah you're right so okay. i don't yeah i mean this is uh all right i'm with you yeah. all right um I, well i clearly
1: clear,
0: clearly we should have been reviewers for this paper with apologies to our colleagues uh nina Veflin and paula oh i think i know i've no politics here i think i've used her
1: as a reviewer on some things but anyway yeah, yeah sorry guys um but but here's here's the thing um it could i don't know but maybe this is another, this is a bit that we're doing now, uh, reject or, or accept. Can we do that? Sure. Um, because, and maybe this is a whole other podcast where we just look at, at we re-review papers that are already published and we decide whether we will uh, reject or accept it because we are the, we're the arbiters of all. Um, no. Uh, but anyway, yeah, no, this this one jumped up and and really how this came to me. Was it was covered in food safety news, right? Because they came out some or somewhere. Right. Someone published about it, and then I was right. like, "That is an interesting concept." Did they really answer the question that's in the headline? And then I went and read the paper, and they did Um, But it got shared all over the place. So, yeah, this is an interesting, interesting one for sure. Um. All right, we talked about butterboards. I want so there's nothing going on in this world, but, but Don, we haven't heard almost anything about big Olaf in a while. And I want to know, I, this is a call out to our friends who listen to the show in Florida or those who listen to the show at FDA. Can someone give us a little more information about big Olaf? Um, This is goes back a few episodes where there was a bunch of people got sick from Listeria and big Olaf um, ice cream who had visited Florida or lived in Florida. And then I think it was like 16 out of the 17, um samples uh, or um big olaf um uh flavors had Listeria monocytogenes and like it's a big big deal outbreak but I, we just haven't heard anything in a while and i even went to fda's uh website today to look at um had had anything been updated and and basically just says that it's under investigation and there hasn't been there's a couple more illnesses that were added and that's it 25 illnesses in 11 states i want oh, more i, mean, if, I want if more you big want- olaf
0: well, it's not it's not it's not big Olaf, uh but it is it is listeria. Um do you want to talk about old Europe cheese Inc issues voluntary recall of its brie and camembert cheeses due to possible health risk?
1: I do, I do. I want to talk about that. Um what? So, people are um people are getting sick. Uh I think there were six illnesses, right? Uh Whole Foods, yeah. Safeway. Yeah. It's, it's,
0: it's it's really interesting. If you look at the CDC page, uh, we got six illnesses, five hospitalizations, six states. Um, Would you, would you care to guess the period of time for the people getting sick? Right, right. It's like goes back to 2017, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's one person sick in 2017. There's one person sick, it looks like in January 2019 one in 2020 and then in 2022 now we've had three um so it's if if this is an outbreak it's a really low and slow outbreak right and it's probably it's probably a contaminated facility and we just needed to get enough cases and enough epidemiology to roll it together but yeah this isn't again this is i think this is just another example of how we're getting better in terms of food safety right to to pull together an outbreak where we link six cases collect where the data we got some people that were part of this this outbreak that were pre-pandemic right right uh, i mean that's a that's a long time
1: and, and you know what you know one of the things that you and i have talked about that i you, you bring a much better appreciation of this than I would thought about before we started doing this podcast and risking or not, but it, at uh, an outbreak like this, where the, it's, it's low, low and slow, right? Like a, a little bit of contamination, something might've happened where it kind of leaks out into the, into the system. Maybe, maybe it's a piece of equipment, maybe it's something in the facility, but Listeria, just because it's in, let's say Camembert, right? Like, I think that's the uh, Brie and Camembert mm-hmm. doesn't mean like it could grow, but there also could be die, right? Like it could die off over over time. And does that complicate things maybe for us here too? Right. Like under the certain conditions, we might get growth, but but you know, like like Salmonella, and I'll go back to um an analogous conversation about like old recalled peanut butter that someone has from 10 years ago, the likelihood of that salmonella from the outbreak strain still being in that peanut butter over these number of years really, really goes away. Right. So does do, like, and I try to look this up really quickly and hopefully while I'm talking, you, you've either accessed in your brain or, you know, of, uh, or you found something on the internet, but you know, would you expect some listeria to die off in, in soft cheeses over time too? Like, is that part of the story? Like we know well, it's going so to grow I, at refrigeration temperatures, but like what's the, does it go up and down?
0: Yeah. So I found, I found an article from uh, JFP um, from a long time ago, 1991. And I will post, paste this into the chat for you. Um, so basically for, they look at 49 cheeses, 24 types, 28 brands. Uh, they inoculated them with about 10 to the four listeria with five five strains, and they stored at 4, 8, and 30 for 36 days. Um, cheeses that supported growth included soft Hispanic-style cheeses, not surprising, ricotta, not surprising, teleme, not surprising, brie, and camembert. Okay. So yep. yeah, you, you can get Listeria growth in Brie and Camembert. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. So for sure. Now what may happen is it may grow and then it may die off, but again, very clear. And then, and obviously the, the other cheeses that don't support growth, which, but would have gradual death uh, would include Hispanic hard cheese, cream cheese, blue cheese, Tillamook, Cracker, Cracker barrel, Monterey, Jack, Swiss, cheddar, Colby, string, provolone, Feta, Feta, uh, sorry, provolone, Munster, Feta, Caseri. Um, and uh, and then um, uh, American, Monterey, Jack, Piedmont, and Limburger. So so again, hard cheeses, they don't doesn't grow, soft cheeses, it will grow.
1: Yeah, and, and I guess um, you, you highlighted that the, I, um, one thing that I'd, I'd also share and again, this answers my question a little bit, and I think it helps me me understand what's happening with the population. I, I just found another article that was in the American Society of Agricultural and Biological Engineers um and uh this one they um started with this uh, specifically this was with camembert and, and they um started with six log cfu um per gram um and i don't know exactly what they what they did here but they started at six and then it was 1.6 log increase over the initial lock uh, inocula- inoculation of four Oh they they yeah. they need to
0: go back and read a certain paper um, by the NACMIF group on challenge studies, because this is not you can't start at 10 to the sixth. If you start right. at 10, I'm I'm critical, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit critical of my good friend Tito Jenna Georges, who is the sen- senior author uh on the on the JFP article that they started at 10 to the four. It would have been yeah. better to start at 10 to the three or 10 to the two, but I can live with 10 to the four, right? I I really if you if you start at 10 to the six, there's not much headroom there. Depending and depending on the food, there might not be any headroom. But l- here's the thing, when Listeria gets into cheese, it's probably not there at 10 to the six. Really, you right, want to right. start at a much lower level. And yeah, but these are, you know, these are ag engineers, right? Biological engineers. They're not, they're not microbiologists. So and I don't recognize any of the authors. No. Uh, but I've it's not a great study.
1: No. So, yeah. And they found, you know, it there's an initial decline during um, the uh, ripening and then it grew afterwards. Right. So and, and I wonder like how much of how much of this again, maybe this is like super things that I should have thought about before, but how much of this old Europe cheese outbreak is um low level and then um not you know not eaten soon after the ripening process, but after some storage uh at refrigeration temperatures either in you know storage and retail or storage in someone's home um because like it's so like it's got to be really hard. To, to identify these like one or two illnesses um, over the course of a year and then being able to link them back to to this. Like, it, it I don't, you know, it, it certainly seems like whatever's happening is not happening in a lot. And, but kudos to our like system of being able to link these, what would probably look like very sporadic cases in 2017, 2018, together with something that's happened this year. It's kind of a, you know, kind of a magical system that we've got right now. Right. And
0: my my hypothesis would be that this is a facility that is regularly throwing off cheese with listeria in it. And again, this gets back to really we need we need a tolerance for, for listeria in foods because then the company could be testing. They could be finding it. They would undoubtedly be finding low levels not high levels, um, and then they could uh, work to do a search and destroy in their facility and get rid of the Listeria. Uh, I suspect that this, this plant is regularly throwing off cheeses with low levels of Listeria. And then occasionally you have a perfect storm where you get growth and you get an immunocompromised person. Because remember, again, yeah. as we often say, Ben, Listeria is not a low dose pathogen. The chance of getting sick, even if you're immunocompromised from a single Listeria cell is very, very low um, on the order of one in a million. And so really you need growth and you still need an immunocompromised person. And I'm not, I don't, I don't, I'm looking for, to see if there's anything in the CDC data about sex or age of the people. Uh, mostly the age is what I'm interested in. Um, let's see. Yep. Sick people range, uh, from 56 to 83 years. The median age is 78. Um, and so, yeah, uh, that's who is at risk of listeria is is people who are uh, immunocompromised for a variety
1: of reasons including just being old so yeah. and, and this is a hard like i mean let's i want to talk a little bit about that today mm-hmm. um now that you bring it up mm-hmm. like we talk a lot about immunocompromised and and so yes we know from our um you know, from how we talk about food safety and consumer education, we, we we utilize the term that I don't really like because I, I just don't like saying it doesn't have a lot of mouth feel for me. Don, Yopi, right? The young, old, pregnant and immunocompromised. Ooh, I hate that. I don't I'm, I'm not a fan hey, no, of it. God, that yeah. sounds gross. So so here we go. Young. Got it. Old, that's what I want to talk about. Pregnant immunocompromised. I I the more that I'm around the world of food safety, the more that I think we don't have a really good handle on, and I mean there's a couple of groups that I think are doing good good work in this. And I'll I'll highlight um our friends at um University Cardiff, uh Met- Metropolitan Cardiff University, I think that's what it's called. Um in, in Wales. Um, Liz Redmond, um, Helen Taylor, um, uh, Ellen Evans, they're doing really good work in, in like a lot of different consumer and um commercial food safety education. Um, and they do have some some work specific to aging populations, but I don't think we do a lot of that here. Like I don't, I know, and I'll, I'll again, speak from, from my experience in my 14 years here, I haven't designed anything that's like, here's how we should talk about food safety specifically to an aging population who may really like camembert and brie, but, but the risks for them change as they get older right? Like what's the right. best way to even communicate that? How do you, what are what are the alternatives that you want to talk about? Right. And it, I don't, I don't know. I I feel like we, we, we just historically are not doing a good job there. And yeah, I so think we, you're right. Yeah. We should do better, do better, yep. be, be be better, Don. Come on. <laughs> be better. I, sh, I should be better. Um, All right. So, so we got that. I put in something about norovirus and I can't remember oh. why,
0: yeah. Oh. Well, this is, this is, that's an interesting one. All right. I, I I put in something about norovirus as well. So you're talking about the MMWR? Yeah. Did you put it in or did I put it in? I, one of us put it in. I read us. it. Anyway, norovirus yeah. outbreaks reported through Norostat. You want to talk yeah, about that? yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah.
1: That's one I want to talk about.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. Okay. So great MMWR as always. I'm currently drinking again, Don, I'm going to like tap, hear that? That is my MMWR um, coffee mug that, um, that, they sent me because I talked really nicely about them and I appreciate them a lot. Uh, uh, great um, article from the Neurostat Network. Uh, I, there's a few people um, who I know on this who are co-authors, Leslie Barkley and Jan Vignet. Um, uh, but uh, this is Anita uh, Kim, Kim Bapati, um, Mary Wisco, um, Sarah Mazira, and uh, Leslie and, and Jan and they just go back and say, "Here we go. Uh, let's look at what pandemic norovirus looked like, and let's look at what um, pre-pandemic norovirus looked like, and let's look also what did the mid, you know, what what did the middle of the pandemic look look like, or the start of the pandemic?" So they, um, we'll will look at here at the, the only figure that's in here because I think it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, they break up. 2019, 2020, 2020, 2021, 2021, 2022, as your seasonal norovirus, and then the range. And gosh, Don, didn't the pandemic in both like March, 2020, and then all the way through the rest of 2020, 2021, look really, really different to what we see seasonally. And gosh, Does 2021, 2022 kind of look like it always did? Like the pandemic really mattered when it came to norovirus outbreak reporting. Is that, I mean, that's, that's what I saw.
0: Yeah. So this is, this it's, it's definitely worth taking some time and looking at this figure, right? Because the, 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 the blue shading shows the pre-pandemic range, Right. And so what we see in the pre-pandemic range is that you start to see a ramp up in norovirus cases in november and it stays high december january february march april uh, march it's high april and may it starts to come down and then again we see june july august september october really no norovirus cases right and so that that blue those that blue band is is the historical range and it's and then what they show is essentially the three years of the pandemic. And the one, the the 19, 2019 to 2020, I guess that's that's like, oh, I guess that's that's yeah. like the year before the pandemic, right? Yeah. And, and what then, you see it- is a, a pretty significant early decline in March, which makes sense. If that's when the pandemic started, that's when people stopped being around other people and we see it come down. Um, in And then 2020, 2021, which is mid this is like you know the peak pandemic, we basically just only get into the, the 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 historical range for just the tail end of March and April. Yep. And then and then um, 2021, 2022, which is I guess the most recent and is essentially like post pandemic, what you see is that you're you're below the historical numbers until February when all of a sudden, bam, you're right back up there again, which is coincident I think with like people like, just like, okay, we're done, now it's February, we're done with the pandemic, February, 2022, we're done with the pandemic, everything's open and boom, norovirus comes right back. Yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. and 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 i think you can see the covid waves in here right like i i know certainly in 2021 and 2022 the december 2021 through like february 2022 was right at the like start of um uh was that was delta right like that's when we that, that was pre omicron and, and so all of a sudden things were like, got, there were more, um, restrictions that were, that were placed, uh, on, on people, depending on where they, depending on where they lived. And then as soon as those restrictions were lifted right back up, right. February, March, we're back to to normal times. I think this is super fascinating, right. Yep. It shows to me, you know, in the, in there, um, uh, the like the they, the authors talk about the use of non pharmaceutical interventions right social distancing not being around other people being more outside certainly i would even add in um like the the idea of like just hand washing and hand sanitizer use right. is probably right. part of this as well. Right. But I, I just, I think it's fascinating to see it all lay out here, right? Like if someone just ask me, what do you think the impacts of the pandemic were on food safety? I'm going to show them this figure and right. say like, here, here's in, in the midst of the pandemic, here are a lot of impacts that we could see on this particular virus that is similar from an intervention standpoint, um a, a, as SARS-CoV-2. And then um, and then when when everything goes back to to normal, it goes right back to where it was. Yeah, it's fa- I think it's fascinating.
0: Yeah. And I wonder, you know, I mean, you mentioned hand washing and hand sanitizers. I wonder, I wonder how much is that? And yeah. how much is just like people aren't eating at restaurants because the restaurants yep. are closed. And so there's not opportunities for mass uh contamination events right and so it's just like if, if you have an outbreak and this is all this is this is data on outbreaks right so it's possible that if you have an outbreak that's small enough it's not even going to show up right and so if you're around fewer people then fewer people are going to be in, impacted uh it would be really interesting to see the case size of the of these outbreaks right because i've got to imagine that not only is the number of outbreaks going down but the case size may be going down as well um yeah, I mean this is but and my 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 guess is that it's mostly just due to people not being around people. I w- I wouldn't attribute much of this to I mean it would be nice to attribute much of this to improved hand washing and hand sanitizer use, but I don't I don't think that's correct. I mean I don't I don't know that's all it's only my opinion. Um but I think mostly it's just because again, if you if you if you're sick with norovirus, you've got billions potentially of, of virus particles on your hands. You're vomiting vi- billions of virus particles. It hand washing and hand sanitation is not really gonna help you when you have that that dose, right?
1: Um, yeah, so, you know yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I think it's yeah. mostly
0: just about not
1: being around people not about, yeah, but I guess we'll we'll never really be able to parse out those specific factors. No, not, I mean, we yeah. could, we could do some models to see whether it would
0: give, like, what would give, you know, what would give patterns that look like this, but, but he, yeah, but that, but that's not uh that's not proof.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, no, I, I think your I think your comments are, are, are are valid, Um you know, in, in this, but I, I mean, cool, cool paper, nonetheless.
0: Yeah, just and great. this is,
1: yeah, and this is the kind of stuff that, that I hope we see more of coming out of the next few years worth of publication, right? Like, what, what we we can start to explain what we see in illnesses and illness patterns better because we had such a focus on data for the last couple of years. Right, like there's a lot out there. Yeah, very cool. Um, and had you ejected? Oh, gr- do you want to talk about um grocery store bags really quick? Sure. Why not? So someone, where is this? Okay, I'm trying to open this.
0: Uh yeah it's uh it's it's uh uh, how clean how often should you clean your reusable grocery bag and this comes from a friend of the podcast ellen uh who often emails us uh with things to talk about and um it's something that um she picked up um which basically links to a um uh, an old article right so it's it's a it, it's the, the article the article in question that we're interested in discussing because it's the basis for the study is assessment of the potential for cross-contamination of food products by reusable shopping bags, which was published in Food Protection Trends in, I don't know when, um, a, oh, a like couple of years. Oh, like 2011, I think. Uh, yes, 2011. Yeah. So, but, um, and I don't, yeah. And then, and so the article that, that um, Ellen sends to us is a re- recent article, right? And it's it's from TastingTable.com. How often, with the, with the headline, uh, how often should you be cleaning your reusable grocery bag? Um, and, it, and it's, you know, it's it, it's it's somewhat timely because we do have a single-use bag ban in New Jersey. And so we are only using reusable bags now in almost every uh, circumstance, which is interesting when I go walk down to the drugstore to pick up some vitamins and toothpaste, I end up carrying this back in my pockets because I have forgotten to bring a bag. Um, but uh, yeah, and the, it says you should wash your, your bags after every trip and you, bags can make you sick. And I, you know, we've, we've this is an article by, uh, out of Chuck Gerber, lab um which we have critiqued before um i think uh the, t- the title of the article is assessment of the i read it already assessment of the potential for cross-contamination um yeah i don't know um uh, how 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 often do you wash your reusable grocery bags ben
1: um i don't know like so the, it depends what goes in on i mean yeah. i and i know we, we've talked a little bit about this so i, I i'm a like um When it comes to the raw meat stuff, I use a specific bag every time only for raw meat, right? Like we know, Danny knows which one's the raw meat one. I know which one the raw meat one is. I also double bag those. We do not have a bag ban, but we use reusable shopping bags for like 99% of what we do shopping wise. So I can still get a plastic second bag that I put raw meat in. Then I put that in the raw meat bag. Nothing nothing else goes in there. And then that one, um i i typically throw it in every time because where like and this is a function of ease right. where i store my like i'll I'll step through how like what my shopping process is come home um after i've shopped i unload all of the bags um and then i put the raw meat bag directly into the washer because it's open and mm-hmm. it is right beside the door to my garage which is where i store the rest of my um, grocery bags until the next time someone goes out to their car and then they take the bags out. So we just are con- like kind of constantly throwing that one in um, to oh, the good. wash. Like
0: you have a better system than we do is I think because I, I Kristen mostly ma- not mostly she 100% manages the shopping and the laundry um, because we're very <laughs> divided along traditional uh, gender roles in that way. Um, uh, you know, e- please email Ben. Um, but, uh, but, but she, basically the bags get washed whenever she decides they need to be washed. Right. Uh, and I don't know if she has a, a separate, uh, raw meat bag. I think she probably does do double bagging if, if it's available. And certainly we know, I know it's available at Wegmans where we've, we've actually recently started shopping again because we're, she's in a place where she's going to Wegmans on a on a regular basis. Um, but, um, but yeah, I, um, I, yeah, you sound to give a really good system.
1: Yeah. Well, and Um, I mean, but I don't think I'm reducing a lot of risk. I think I do it because every once in a while we get some juice in there and it smells. Yeah. And, and if it gets wrapped up in the other bags, it doesn't really dry out. So the other ones, I just, you know, like, that's it. That's the only reason why I do it. I'm not worried at all about, um, the safety of bags. And I, we started to do some work in this a while ago and we never really finished the project or published it. Basically, can you even transfer, if you put pathogens in the bag, how would you even transfer it to your, um, to your like produce that is outside of the bag? Right. Like what's the, what's the likelihood of that? So, yeah, I mean, I don't, I I'm not, I don't, I, I don't, I'm I not worried about bags. And I think this whole conversation really came up for us in, an, in a really old podcast episode where we talked about one of our favorite papers or outbreaks at least, um, where uh, people got sick at a cheerleading con- con- convention or competition because someone vomited in a in a restroom at a hotel and there happened to be food in a reusable plastic bag or a reusable bag in that food. And the outbreak investigation ended up like the coverage of it highlighted that it was a reusable bag, right? But really it was the fact that there was food in there at all. It didn't matter if it was a plastic bag or not. Um, and and Bill Keene, um, our RIP Bill, um, one of the best foodborne epidemiologists and food safety folks out there, um, you know, emailed us a few times about this and gave us all the deets, uh, on that situation. But yeah, I mean, I don't do you know, bags they, Hey, Don, just as a callback, they don't make my list of, uh, top 20 or top 50 risky things.
0: Well, you know, what does make my, my, my top list of things when I Google cheerleading competition, uh, norovirus, uh, bags. no um it's a food safety info sheet <laughs>
1: ah really old one back yeah. in the day Bill
0: cheerleader leads to outbreak yeah uh, for more information benjamin chapman at ncsu.edu
1: hit me up with all those. It's got a
0: wonderful picture of um that funny guy from those movies
1: who's <laughs> so, is he vomiting no he's uh, uh, he's a cheerleader Oh, oh, uh, Will Will Smith, you will. No, no, uh, no, the other will. will. The other Will. Will Farrell Will, will Farrell Will. Yeah, the other. Yeah, will, the other Will yeah, Smith.
0: Yeah, I'm so. It's like, oh, this has this is Ben's Ben's figures all over it.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. Absolutely. Uh cool. Anything else? Uh, anything else you want to want to talk about today? Well, I don't know. Do you? Have, how? What's your schedule? Yeah, you my schedule out? is I got I got like a I got a soft out. I got uh, yeah I got someone who wants to talk to me um, before I go somewhere.
0: Oh, that's so one. we can I yeah can, i think we can call that a show
1: all right well let's let's call that call that a show um this has been another uh episode of uh, food safety talk we the one that's awkward at the end and doesn't have a real intro um and uh so we always end it with uh, one of us saying bye 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 <laughs> see you later see ya good um all right yeah i gotta we're we're transitioning our social media accounts because we have don here here's the fun here's the fun um i i inherited a department that had merged that had multiple pre-merger social media accounts and now we want them all in one because it's much more much more consistent so we got to figure out all the ways to do that that would seem to be a good idea
0: how hard could It, it be
1: it's 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 hard it's not easy sometimes like and it's the social media like changing the name of an instagram uh account is difficult changing a facebook like page when like when there's multiple owners is difficult yeah interesting yeah yeah cool um when so i still haven't edited the the last one because i'm way behind Mm. um sorry but when you want to do it again
0: Good question. Uh, hold on one second. Oops. Well, what do you what do you think in terms of uh, getting these both of these edited? What are your
1: um? Oh, well, I've I've got the. Um audio edited. I just need to make the show notes for the last okay. one. My plan is to post it today.
0: oh, the, the post so, the other one the sorry. last one.
1: yeah. Okay. and so I would post the this other like the one we recorded today next week sometime. okay yeah. so so if we were looking at like you know the week of the eighteenth would be good.
0: okay. also known as the week of the seventeenth.
1: yes, sorry, not that I was just looking at the word the the number eighteen, which is Tuesday week mm-hmm. of the seventeenth. Yes. so I could do like, the morning of the 17th, basically all, but in, anytime before noon, I could do the afternoon of the 17th, anytime after 1.30, I could do. Yeah, um,
0: you want to do the afternoon of the 17th at
1: 2? Uh, yep. yep, perfect. Done. Done, done, done that is set and then yeah i'll get this one all finished Great. um cool well that was good i think that's uh i think that's a show there's not i don't have i don't have a lot of after um after dark uh after uh what what do we call this po- after so what called what's the pod what's the post show called
0: oh jesus
1: we used to have a name for it after yeah the after a- show the after show, <laughs> the after show. Well, I don't know why I called it After Dark. That seems like something that must be uh, another show that I'm conflating here. I think
0: you're thinking of Playboy After Dark.
1: I'm thinking of Playboy. It must be. It must be. Uh, all right. I got go. right. <laughs> right. to go. T- later. right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.